I know what you're thinking, ladies and gentlemen. Man, do they play some funky music on Balls in the Air with Charlie Romer. Yes, that's exactly what we do. We're all about the funky music here and talking about golf and what's going on in the world of golf and having some really cool special guests. I'm Charlie Romer, your host. We're here on Balls in the Air. We tee off on time every time. you got 9 o'clock tee time with me. And you get there at 9.02, I'm gone because ball's in the air at 9 o'clock. That's what we named the show. We are on time every time. And I'm thrilled this time to have my very special buddy and guest, Sean the Beast Fister, three-time World Long Drive champion. He won 1995, 2001, 2005. And Sean, welcome to the show and welcome to the Myrtle Beach area. You and your wife, Karen, are the newest residents here in Myrtle Beach, you live in Merle's Inlet. You're on staff here at the Dustin Johnson Golf School where we're uh, recording this show today. Welcome to the area, Sean, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's a, I really feel lucky to be number one in the golf capital of the world where there's so much golf action to begin with and then to be associated with the Dustin Johnson Golf School. I mean, this facility is is it is really world class. I'm not exaggerating. It is a this facility has got everything and it's tour level. Yep, it is. And we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. The school's located uh, at TPC Myrtle Beach, which just a couple years ago was uh, uh, voted as number one course in the state of South Carolina. Great facility. Alan Terrell is a lead instructor here and and uh, Alan is a great friend of the show in the area. We're going to have Alan on some shows um, down the road. Of course, he mentors and has coached for a long time, the number one player in the world, Dustin Johnson. They've got a really special relationship. But right now, let's talk about the beast some. And, and Sean, I you know, mentioned right there at the top of the show, you're a three-time world long drive champion. I had a chance to be on the show back in my days at ESPN for the 2001 and 2005 wins in, in what was in the REMAX World Long Drive Championship out in, in Mesquite, Nevada. And uh, one of the coolest things, you tell me I get confused about it. I never get confused. Sean, well, maybe No, a I know bit, you but, better than that. But in 2001, yes, that was the coolest thing that I ever got a chance to broadcast in my life because you're the last guy up. We, we're, we're doing that show at night in Mesquite. Uh, the, the grid looks beautiful. It's under lights. And... Um, you're the last person to hit. At the time, you had six balls, and the first five, you, you really you really sucked it up with the first five. I mean, I don't even think you got one on the grid. I did, I did, I did. <laughs> I wasn't that bad. But tell me about that six ball. You're the last guy to hit. It's your last ball. I'm standing there. I'm supposed to interview the winner, and I'm thinking at that time, there ain't no way it's going to be the beast, but tell us what happened. Well, it's funny is you, you say that, and I was standing – I had my pre-shot routine down, I mean, where I was executing seven little items in my checklist for my routine. And, you know, I I'd actually hit one ball. I think it was my third ball. I hit a little bit thin, and it was 360-something, and that put me in fifth. So the, everyone in the leading spot was Brian Pavlett, the guy I roomed with on the road, my best friend in Great Long guy. Drive. Great guy. He's a lot nicer than you are, by the way. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm going to have to beg to differ. But he was in first place, and he was going to win his first world title. He had won a national title, but he this was his time. It was really looking like that. And so I, I came down to my last ball. Now, 
what a lot of people don't know is that prior to me coming over there, I was on the range warming up, and I was the only one left, so there was no one on the range. It was dead quiet out there, and I had this telephone pole about 450 yards down that I was aiming at, and I was hitting lasers right at it, and I thought, man, this is, I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden behind me, Pavlet walks by, and he's looking up, sees where I'm hitting it, and he knows I'm killing it. And then all of a sudden I hear this tea snap. He starts picking up teas and snapping them. And it's, it's distracting. On the, on the warm-up range. Yeah, behind yeah. me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, oh, boy, he's gaming me. I can't believe he's gaming me. And finally, and I, I pushed one right, and I was like, all right, dadgummit. <laughs> I use stronger language than that. But uh-huh. I turned around, and I said, Brian. I said, he goes, yeah. I said, get over here. He walks up to me, and he's big as me and you, and he's looking right. I said, man, whatever happens, happens, buddy. I mean, you know, I know you're nervous, you're pacing, but stop snapping those <laughs> those teeth. I understand where you, where the words you left and out there. And he's like, yeah. oh, I'm just nervous. I'm like, well, you're making me nervous. Go be nervous somewhere else. Yeah, get away from me. <laughs> so I went over there, because I come down to the last ball, and we had five minutes to hit on the tee at the time. Mm-hmm. I had a minute and 15 seconds left with my last ball. I was usually a pretty quick hitter. And I'm standing there, and, you know, ESPN is running. And I'm like, you know, I've got these logos, and these people are, you know, I've got bonuses, and I'm getting airtime. This is the meter's running. I'm doing good. So I take my time. I go to tee my ball up, and I just glance over, and I see Brian is already, they're prepping him to come up and get the, the celebration and stuff. And I see one guy, and I read his lips. He's like, there's no way. And, I mean, I, I was like, really? Are you really going to say that? There's no way? I was like, well, I'm getting ready to show you there's a way. And yeah. that, that gave me motivation. And so I knew that the grid was going to give up maybe a soft bounce or a hard bounce because the ground was different in different spots. It was cold that night, too. And the temperature had dropped. So yeah. I had to hit a really good ball, and I decided that I was going to have to hit a trap, a low bullet, because if I hit it the way I want to hit it, it's going to release. It's not going to come in high. Yep. It's going to release. So I, I did it. I hooded the club a little bit. I closed my stance, and I came through, stayed behind it, and I hit it pure. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. If it checked up, I lose. If it releases, I win. And it hit, flew to about 367 in the air, and it, boom, it took that bounce, about mm-hmm. a 10-yard bounce. Up that left side. Yep, and it left center, and it rolled past 375, 76, and that was it. I won on the last ball. And that was, that was they called it the greatest single shot in the history of the sport because it was so much pressure on it. And, and I had come out of the loser's bracket and fought my way back. It was, I had to hit 13 rounds to get there. And, uh, yeah, and it all culminated. The stars were lined up, and it, it all happened for it, me. It, it was so, so cool for me to run in and do the interview because the adrenaline um, in, in your eyes, was, it's, it's emotion, it's adrenaline, it's all of that. And well, to we capture trained, all of that see, was we, so cool. We trained 364 days a year for one night. Yeah. We have one shot to be the world champion. And that's the only time, and, and that, you know, reaching that and fulfilling that, being able to accomplish your, 
your dream to become a world champion or whatever is there's nothing like that feeling when you, wow, I did it, you know. And it's not a team. It is a team preparing, but when you're actually on the tee box, it's you. You're the only one there. Yeah. Yeah. The only well, one there. That, that was such a cool night. And, and um, just, just hearing you retell that story, and I've heard you tell it a lot. We've known each other since about 1995, and, and, I, and I love watching you do your clinics and exhibitions and the, the um, club hits beat it and what it used to be, but it's still well, <laughs> impressive to watch. But, but that's what I want to get into. 2005, you won your third. You're the oldest before or since to win. I believe you're 43 when you won yep. your, your third. Um, pe- people don't realize in World Long Drive, you know, there, there's a purse, there's some money you get for that. But when, when you're the World Long Drive champion, you, you go on the road giving exhibitions mm-hmm. everywhere. That's how, that's how you take advantage of it. And that, that's why you, you get in a sport because you like it and you're good at it, but you want to monetize it too. So, so over the years, I don't think people realize the toll that being a three-time World Long Drive champ and all the exhibitions, all the travel – take on, on on your body walk walk me through a, a, a little bit of of some of the things that you've had to deal with with your body from swinging the club that hard for so long that yeah. people might not realize well i i was a i was a marathon hitter i i i hit a lot of balls i would hit balls for eight hours a day probably 300 and something days a year this was my job and uh i wanted to win so i you know, I I tried to work my way through swing flaws and and you know I would every time I practiced I hit six balls at a time I and I rehearsed so it was eight hours of rehearsal every single day for that final round and I would play a game with myself I'd play the move the towel I'd set a towel out in the fairway at my longest ball of each group and I kept continually trying to move that towel that was my goal with every set. And then at the end of the day, on my last set, I wanted to have the longest ball because when you're there's a grueling schedule during that week where you're hitting in different rounds and you have to warm up, cool down, warm up, and you may go again here. You have to be prepared. So that's the way I approached it. But I I was a doctor friend of mine that you know I had a lot of aches and pains from all this rotation and. Uh, you know, I was getting cortisone shots here and there, and, and uh, he one day asked me, he goes, well, how many times do you think you've actually swung a driver at full force, in your, you know, on, the, on your body? And we started figuring it out. Well, he, he trimmed the numbers back, conservative numbers, and the bottom line, it ended up that, that I've swung a golf club at least 140 miles an hour club head speed over 3 million times. And his point was that your body is going to wear out. So I had the, the parts of my spine, discs and stuff that wore out were the hinge points, like in your thoracic, your upper body meeting your lower, that thoracic joint. I had to have that disc repaired. And, my, and then the other thing is stopping the swing. When you're swinging over 150 miles an hour and you're accelerating through impact, the club has to stop at some point. And what I was doing was at the top, my left shoulder was stopping and jamming into my neck, and I wore out that disc. And so then I had a fusion on my lower back. So I've got a titanium plate in my neck with screws, fusion in my lower back, discectomies and stuff. So, yeah, it takes a toll. I can't swing 
near what I used to. I, I, and that's that's the thing. And let me put this in perspective, folks. Average swing speed on a PGA Tour for a long time, people said, is 112 miles an hour. I think it's probably more like 115 now. The players with the highest club head speed on tour, um, 125, 128. Nobody really cracks 130. Uh, to, to speak of. You, you well, the, the, if they get out of control, they might. Right. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in the show, in particular what's going on with Bryson DeChambeau. But, but for our purposes here, you, you're talking about swinging the club north of 145 miles an hour. How many times did you say? Over a million times three, easily? Three million times. Yeah, three million times. So three million is over a million. So I was – Right. Yeah, it's three yeah. times that what you said. <laughs> three million times. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. The toll yeah. that take, takes on your body. And you you and I over the years have played some golf together. We we have a lot of fun. Normally we play with our buddy Mark Bryan from Hootie and the Blowfish. And and you love to compete. Last time we played was down at Bulls Bay in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And and uh, had my my son Hayden uh, played with us. He got a little club head speed too, but. But you, you love to compete, but I, I just get the sense on days that we're playing, a couple of times, you, you know, if I look closely, I, I see some winces, you know, and it's almost like every now and then he's going to have some tears coming out of his, his eye. Because you, you're dealing with, every time you go to play golf now, you're dealing with some pain, even if you don't want to admit it. I can see it in the way you carry yourself. Well, that's, that's true. And it's uh, the frustrating part for me in my golf game is that every day something else hurts. Yeah. So I'm always compensating for something that's hurting. So my swing is accommodating that pain. So I cannot get a consistent move to where I can, and I can't consistently score well because if if I get take it to the top, my neck pinches, then I'm flinched, and yeah. you know I throw the shoulder out. I'm you know that's a problem for me. So I just have to tell people, look, I might. You know, if we got a little game, I might ride a couple holes, but I'll be back here in a little yeah, bit. And yeah, I, and I might, I might have a blow up hole, but I, I might, I might throw an eagle at well, you too. And I've had some of those eagles thrown at me too. And and Sean, Sean along with hitting the ball along was is a very good player and got got a lot better short game and you're better putter than than I would think you might be. And and uh, our games are always competitive. We always have a lot of fun, and and generally it comes down to the last couple of holes. I, I want to go back to something that you said. When you were talking about winning in 2001, even though you were under the clock, you, you, you said you, you went through your checklist. And you mentioned there's seven items on your checklist. Yeah. Can you walk me through what those items well, are? Well, my, my routine, my pre-shot routine, you know, was every year might be a little tweaked a little bit, but I would do that way back early in the year. But I had just – I don't know if I'm going to name all seven of them exactly, but what I – I remember that I would I'd tee the ball up and I would take uh, four steps back and I would stand directly behind the ball and I would close my and I'd put the, the butt of the grip against my first belt loop to the set on the left of my belt buckle. Yeah. And I'd drop my hands. And That's I'd, back when we could see our belt loops. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. And I'd, I'd shake my hands out, I'd close my eyes and I'd open them back up and I would picture the shot that I was going to hit, and I'd do that three times. And then when I saw the, the shot I was planning to hit, then I would take the four steps back up, and I'd set the club down behind the ball, and I'd look, I'd, make, I'd take three looks at the fairway of where I was going to go. I'd tap the club once, 
and then I'd pull the trigger. And then go. And then I'd go. And the thing is that when you're under a lot of pressure, you know, I do mental coaching. So I, I've been working, I worked with a kid that's a golfer from a college up in Memphis. And I taught him this stuff. And the thing is, the, I was telling him why he needed to focus really hard on the details of his routine. You're going to do the routine so many times that it will become automatic where you won't have to think about it. But let me tell you something. When you get under pressure and you have to hit a shot, that's when you have got to focus, You have to really focus on those steps and, and go through them while you're hitting your shot. And that takes your mind off of, oh, what was that water over there or whatever. Line up to your shot. Pick your shot when you're behind it, but go up there and execute the swing, and you try to do a flawless routine, and you focus on those things, that takes your mind off the pressure, and it allows you to hit a good shot when you really have to. I, I love love watching that. It, it, it's like watching um, field goal kicking. It, it, that fascinates me because I, I see the kickers at 52-yarder to win the Super Bowl or beat your rivalry team or win your conference championship. They're, they're very methodical in, in the way they line up. A player standing on the 18th tee, at Augusta with a one-shot lead, looking at that at the 18 tee. If you hadn't been to that back tee at Augusta National, it's narrow up there. But going yeah. through that routine, you and and hitting the last ball, the last man to win a world long drive title, it's all about routine. And it's That's all and, I was yeah, focused on. And it's on. not not only long drive; it's in the rest of golf, and it's in all other sports. Yeah. And and that's why I think I, it's fascinating to talk to you about the mental coaching that you do. And and it is one thing that coach people up which, which is great but if you've been there and done it you know that's a little extra weight that comes in that in that lesson well the difference is knowledge versus knowledge and experience versus opinion and education people can read about that stuff some people that are doing mental coaching that have never been an athlete and they're they but they've been trained and they've certified and they've read it but they haven't really experienced it exactly Exactly. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about equipment. Um, I, I took a picture of, of the three drivers that you won, 95, 2001, and 2005, the, the three drivers that you used to win those world long drive titles. Uh, and and we'll, we'll post a picture on, on the website so people can look at that. But, but talk to me a little bit about how much that equipment changed from 1995 to 2005. It was, you, you, don't, you don't realize it, you know, that's a 10, 11 year span that I was competing. And the tailor-made Pittsburgh persimmon driver that I hit in 95, that was what a lot, that size was a lot most people were hitting. And so it, I didn't think it was small. It looks like a seven wood now. It's, it's really small when you compare it to what, the, what we've gone to now. Because we're, that's 185 cc's and comparatively the new drivers are 340 cc's that's that's almost three times the size uh that's it's like a, a dime going to a quarter to a dollar coin it's a big difference but and i and i remember when the drivers first started getting bigger and i was resistant to go to that because i thought the air drag from the bigger heads was was going to negate any gains you could get but they've Change the materials, the perimeter weighting, the designs, and the you know the mass properties and stuff. That it's uh, so much easier to hit these clubs. 
your sweet spot is way bigger. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to see some of these guys that are competing now grab that Pittsburgh persimmon. <laughs> now you're sounding like a grumpy old man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful. But, I'm but, grateful. E- but even then from 2005 to, to 2021, yeah. you know, I mean, you, you look at a 2005 club head and a 2021 club head, there's not a massive difference in size, but if you start looking at cross sections and what goes into the shafts, I mean, they, they got smart people, these equipment companies, too, developing these golf clubs. It, it makes you sort of wonder where we're going to get to eventually with all the equipment as far as it's coming in a short period of time. Well, knowledge, you know, knowledge is doubling and tripling all the time with technology, and there's no telling what's going to happen. But, you know, I, I hear the, the argument that, you know, the ball should be scaled back. But I, I don't know. I, I think that people are going to compensate and get better. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. And, you know, whoever gets the ball in the hole the quickest, you know, wins or, the, you know, the least amount of strokes. But, yeah, I think technology is just going to continue getting better and better. And the athletes are, are getting way more efficient. Well, let, let, let's, let's, let's talk about that because you come from an athletic background. You, you got – a lot of professional athletes in, in your family. Your dad was a good baseball player. Yeah, talk talk played, to me a little bit about that. Well, my, it started with my grandfather. He played in the 20s with uh, uh, the Detroit Tiger system. You know, they had a lot of farm system teams back then, but he played professional baseball. His brother was St. Louis Browns. My dad uh, played 10 years in a Cardinal organization going up and down the, the minor league ladder. He went all the way up AAA and went to spring training camp a couple times. But then his brother was Cincinnati Reds, and then my younger brother signed with the Braves, played for a year or two, and he went to the Cardinals for a little bit. And then my I got two nephews, Tyler Hansbro and Ben Hansbro, that both were college standouts. Tyler particularly was like for Coach good. Roy Williams, University of North yeah, Carolina. And his he's he's the only player that's ever had his jersey number retired while he was still playing at University of North Carolina. That's saying something. Yeah. And so his name's in the rafters there. And Ben was Big East Player of the Year at Notre Dame. So we do have a lot of athletes. But, yeah, I consider myself the runt of the litter. You were for a while. You had that late, late growth spurt, yeah, right? Yeah. I, had a, I didn't really start growing until I, I had 50. I, <laughs> well, you're growing out. Right. Yeah. Well, there's growth that counts, yeah, I'm right? More, more round than but, I am but, long. But you, you were in the track and field. Yeah. And you went to the University of Florida on a track scholarship. Yes. You were actually a javelin catcher at the University of Florida. Is that right? I, I caught a few javelins, but the coaches, <laughs> they put a stop to that pretty quick. Yeah, I was you're, a little bit pole, of a daredevil. Pole vaulter. Yeah, in the pole, to be a pole vaulter, you've got to be a little bit of a, a lot of a daredevil and a little bit crazy. I know that looks crazy to me. I it, tried it a few times. I kept snapping those things. I couldn't find one. You know, well, I needed like a double X stiff, and uh, you know, uh, when you snap a pole, you don't walk <laughs> away from it without some marks. Because yeah. well, I, I got cracked some marks, my skull. Right. I cracked my skull. I broke my back. I broke my right foot eight times. My left foot four times, hmm. and uh, severed my trapezius muscle. How do you do that when you, you you have problems going up or you go down and miss the 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 the, the thing is the is mattress. What do you call that where you land in pole vaulting? Pit. It's a pit. The pit. Charlie. Yeah, it looks uh, like a big mattress to me. Yeah, it's a pit. Did you, you miss? Learn did the you miss the? I, well, I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm not a pole vaulter. The but. thing about the pole vaulting is you're running full speed towards the pit, and then you raise the pole up and you smack it in this this box that's 
yep. down, six inches down, and you slide it in, and it stops. So you take that energy, and you hit that stopping point, and you put the, the pole bends, so you're putting all that energy from your run into the pole. Yep. That's a lot of energy. I know. I've seen and it. you it looks... bend it, and you bend it out, and then it catapults you. Yeah. Now, if you don't have enough energy going in there for the certain size of pole you're on, you'll get rejected. Mm-hmm. Which happened to me quite a bit. Rejection. You get rejected, you're hanging on to the pole at 16, 17 feet, and you're up there, and you're, there's no pit under you. Right. So you missed a pillow is what happened. I missed the pit many times because <laughs> I was a little bit crazy trying yeah. to get on big poles. But, yeah, I broke my back and uh, cracked my skull, and yeah, I had a lot of problems with that. But but, but you set some track records is yeah, what s- I've been reading. On, I I mean, the Wikipedia some, is accurate. Uh, you ha- you still hold some records today. Or I do. Some stadium records and some school have, records and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I jumped over 17 feet and close to 18 feet, but uh, I set a, several stadium records and some of them still stand and I still have one college pole vault record. Not that I'm really staying on top of it. I've well, I mean, I've, I, listen, if I had a record, I'm going to talk about that, it a little bit. I, I set that, that record back in 1981. Wow. So, so you're 17 feet, and, and I don't know anything about pole vaulting, obviously, but what would a world record be? 19, 19. It's over 20 now. Yeah. At the time, it was, it was 18, 10, I think. Yeah. So but, you were, so 17 feet on a pole vault is like for the longest time I know in running, a four minute mile was a big deal. Um, you, 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 the equivalent would have been maybe just outside doing 17 feet of pole vault when you were doing that would have been the equivalent of sniffing, breaking a four minute mile. I mean, I'm, no, I'm just, I, no, I, 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 it's not that at that level, to be honest yeah. with you. At 17 feet, it sounds impressive. Well, to me. 17 will win the SEC championship, but it won't win the national championship. Yeah, so or, or not. You, did you ever think about being in the Olympics? Is what yes, I, I did, but but you know, I found out later. You know, when I was at University of Florida, I was strictly pole vaulting. And one day I was walking by the baseball field on my way back, and they had normal guys out there. And there was a line of guys at the pitchers' mound. And I told this guy, I said, what are they doing out there? And he said, let's walk on tryouts. And I was like, I didn't have a glove or anything. And I walked out and I got in line on the pitchers' mound. And I got up there, and he said, throw three pitches. They had a gun behind there. So, and I was already warmed up, so I just left track practice. I throw three in there, and normally you throw three, you go get another line. I threw the three, and I started to walk off. The coach said, hey, let me see three more from that guy. I threw three more, and he leaned up, and he goes, can you throw any harder than that? I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. He goes, I don't care where it goes. If it goes over the backstop, give me all you got. And I threw three more, and he pulled me aside. He says, "Do you? Uh, what's your history with baseball? I said, I played one year of American Legion. He said, do you have any idea how, how fast you throw a baseball? I said, no, sir. He said, you're throwing over 90 miles an hour. Wow. He goes, we don't have – he said, son, we're number one in the nation. We don't have a pitcher on our staff that throws over 90. And he said, what's your name? And I said, Sean Fister. And I said, but, I, you know, I run track here. And he, he said, Fister, Fister. He goes, are you any kin to Rogers Fister? And I said, that's my dad. He said, well, hell, I caught for your dad in the minor league, son. That, How about that? That explains everything. <laughs> and the next day, my track coach got wind of me 
dabbling with that, and he called me in, and he said, "You're not playing baseball, pal." <laughs> That's pretty cool to get uh, get a uh, on a gun at over ninety miles an hour. Well, folks, he's Sean Fister. He's a three time World Long Drive champion. He's in the Arkansas State golf hall of fame he is in the world long drive hall of fame in fact he served as president in the world golf hall of fame you're not still president I'm yeah right? still yeah. president of the world golf hall of fame we, we got plenty more stories coming from sean fister you stick with us we're going to get into where he got that nickname the best nickname in sports the beast that's coming up next right here on balls in the air Friendly neighborhood host Charlie Reimer. We're coming to you today from the Dustin Johnson Golf School in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. We're at the far end of the driving range at TPC Myrtle Beach, which a couple years ago was rated the number one golf course in the state of South Carolina. It's a really cool golf course. If you are in the area, stop by and uh, give it a shot. If you're interested in getting a little help with your golf game, reach out to the folks at the Dustin Johnson Golf School. You can reach them at DustinJohnsonGolfSchool.com. Thrilled to be joined today uh, by my good buddy, Sean the Beast Fister. He's a three-time World Long Drive champion. That's right, three-time World Long Drive champion. If you win it once, you know, it could have been a fluke. If you win it twice, you know, a little more serious fluke. But if you win the World Long Drive championship three times, you hit it a long ways, folks. In fact, there's only one person on the planet, Jason Zubak, who has won it more than Three times, I believe uh, Jason has five titles, if I'm correct on that. Nobody knows where he is anymore. He sort of disappeared. But Sean is living here in Myrtle Beach, attached to the staff here at the Dustin Johnson Golf School. Um, the uh, lead instructor is Alan Terrell, who uh, has been a longtime coach and mentor of world number one, Dustin Johnson. And, and Sean, uh, going to our little break there, I teased that I'm going to ask you, about getting that nickname, the coolest nickname on the planet, the Beast. Tell me how you got nicknamed the Beast. Before I was ever, before I ever did any long driving, I I was in the corporate world. I worked for Dillard's Department Stores in Little Rock. Didn't, didn't you sell like women's underwear there or something? No, like no, I never got promoted yeah. that high. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've no. been quite a women's underwear well, salesman, I'm sure. I'm not even touching that, Charlie. <laughs> but, uh, no, I worked at Dillard's, and I worked my way up into the corporate office in the buying program, and so I started playing on the corporate softball team, and uh, it was a uh, beer-drinking type deal, you know, but uh -huh. they were competitive, and our, our third baseman was worth about $900 million. Yeah. Mike Dillard, one of the sons of the founder, and he and I ended up becoming, we're still very good friends. He calls me all the time. Uh, but anyway, he nicknamed me Sean the Beast because I was hitting these home runs that were not just over the fence, but they were still climbing when they got over uh -huh. the lights. And I was taking car windows out. And, and uh, you know, I hit the ball a long way, softball. Yep. So he started calling me Sean the Beast. And that's where it started. So, but when I and everybody at Dillard's, my I just referred to me as Beast. Yeah. Even in meetings, like Beast, what do you think? 
I mean, what are you going to say? They name you the Beast. What are you going to say? No, please don't call me Beast. I mean, what a cool nickname. But, well, uh, and it, that was, it was pretty much limited to that, you know, circle of friends. The coworkers, then I went to the, I started long driving, and I went to the championship in 1995, and I had gotten, I was, I was, I had been competing for a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me back, back up a little bit. When you say you started long driving, you, you work in a department store, you got an athletic background, you, you hit a lot of home runs in softball. How, how did you start in long driving? I mean, what, what, what got you going there? Well, I, I had, after I got done pole vaulting, I had a pole vaulting accident. I broke my back, I mentioned earlier, and then that was the end because I'd had several back injuries, and they were telling me that if you fall again, you could be paralyzed. So you can't, you're going to have to give that up. So I did. Well, my younger brother had just gotten uh, released by the Braves, so he was playing golf, and I think I was 24 at the time, and he said, you need to try golf, and I'm like, man, I don't do golf, you know, I, that's just not what I do, and he said, come on out and try it, so I come out and try it, when well, my high school track coach happened to be there, and he says, yeah, let's go play at nine holes, and so I didn't know how to hit it or anything, but, and I was hitting it everywhere, but we got to this one par four that was, 80% fairway, and there was a pond in front of, right up by the green. It was a 350-yard par four. And I connected on one, and I was using a nine-degree Spalding, pla it was a plastic head. It wasn't yeah, wood. like a driving range-looking club. Yeah, and a, and a regular shaft, and it's 42 inches, whatever. But I flew it on the green in the air for 345 yards, and and I didn't. Is it, it's really your first time on a golf course? Yes. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, I, I could hit home runs and stuff, so I knew I could hit it far. But he, my coach was like, son, you don't understand. I've been playing golf all my life. He said, I've never seen a ball hit even remotely that far. He said, that's ridiculous. And uh, he said, you, you may have been in the wrong sport. <laughs> and uh, so th then I started swinging hard every time. Yeah. And I ended up driving every par four on that course. And one Saturday, the head pro was sitting there, and he reading the paper. And he says, uh, Fister, I'm, I'm getting tired of hearing about how far you hit the ball. He goes, look here, there's a qualifier next week, two weeks in St. Louis for the National Long Drive Championship Qualifier. Now, you go up there and hit. He goes, because these guys are on TV. They can really hit it. Mm -hmm. You're going to come back here with your tail tucked. You're going to find out what long is. And I, I went ahead and did it. You I come back with a trophy? I did. <laughs> and, and I, and you, I, say, you say, this is, what, is this what tail tuck looks like, this trophy yeah, right here? Yeah, I won, the, I won that. Then I won the regional and went to the national championship the first year. And it's the same. It's a world championship now, but it's all the same stuff, same guys. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that was uh, every time I go back home to my uh, small town, Poplar Bluff, Missouri. It's a small town, but. And it's hard to get to, but when I am there and I see that pro, I say, man, I sure <laughs> am glad you challenged me to do that because it, it changed my life. Well, I, I, I mentioned he's a member of the Arkansas Golf Hall of Fame, the, the uh, Long Drive uh, World Golf Hall of Fame. He's also in the Poplar Bluff Sports, Sports Hall of Fame yeah. as well. That's, that's some really cool stuff. So yeah, let, let's spin forward. Um, long Drive <clears> – <throat> 
through the pandemic didn't help, business relationship with Golf Channel. We were starting to get some regular events that, that were on Golf Channel along with the World Long Drive Championship. The World Long Drive is the sport right now is – is it fair to say that it's dead or waiting for somebody to pick it up? It's, what to it's, do not, with it? it's not dormant dead. right now. It's not dead and it's not dormant, but it's not, it doesn't have the, the media exposure that it had, obviously, with the Golf Channel, you know, owning it. And they still own the rights to it, but they're just parking it. Sitting right on it. Yeah. And they, they were looking for partners, and I'm not sure how hard they were looking, but. They've shelved it, and that's the way it is. Now, there's some other uh, things that are going on. There's an amateur long drive uh, uh, world championship that is actually run out of Myrtle Beach. Uh, Jeff Gilder does that. And um, then there's a professional long drive. So there's some, there's some people that are doing it and, and, and trying to keep it going. Yeah. For the and, and, and that that to me is really unfortunate because yeah, it is it is I be, agree. because it had picked up some traction yeah and and along with being able to hit the ball tremendous distances there's little things in there that always made it juicy you guys don't always get along and there's little yeah. twitter spats and all of that and I think occasionally some hurt feelings I I sort of think it adds some spice to world drive but but occasionally some folks do get a little upset but I, I don't have any problems with that but what is fascinating is <clears throat> there's more interest right now in hitting a golf ball as long as you can possibly hit it on the PGA Tour and professional golf than in my entire lifetime. And, and a lot of that was driven this past year by Bryson DeChambeau. Of course, he won the U.S. Open. He bulked up. He spent some time with, with Kyle, Berkshire, who <clears throat> Kyle Berkshire, who is a world long drive champion, sort of picked his brain a little bit. And, and so the interest in, in, in long drive – in, in conventional golf is as yeah. strong as it's ever been, and yet there's not an organized tour that's on TV like we thought would happen. Well, long driving has always been a stepchild of golf, but Bryson DeChambeau is the first person that's actually given it some credibility, you know, from the PGA Tour. It's always been kind of thought of, thought of as, you know, a stepchild and stuff. But um, what he's doing, I have to tell you that, the stuff that he is applying to his preparation, we've been doing for 15 years. We've been doing that. Okay, you, you're going to you're gonna have to give me some specifics on that. You know that, right? I, well, You just opened up a can yeah, of worms. Yeah, I, I got to hear about that. some of that. I understand yeah. that. The thing is, is that uh, we have been doing it a lot longer. It's not new. It's new to the PGA Tour. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of tradition Involved with the PGA Tour, and there's a lot of, you know, we got we have a lot of hurdles in long driving that uh, we have to get over to to relate to the average golfer. The average golfer relates to the PGA Tour because they use USGA certified equipment. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a misnomer out there that the average golfer out there still thinks that long drivers use these ridiculously long drivers. And that we're all six nine and four hundred pounds giants, and it's not the case. Everything is USGA it's certified. Conforming, forming equipment, forming just like the tour. Yeah, um, the shafts are a little bit longer, but the average tour player is not six four, which is probably the average long drive size. Mm -hmm. And there's not guys below and above, but 
but but to get back to what Bryce is doing, um, he is he is uh, you know getting serious about protein intake and and resistance training and, and bulking up and, incre- and increasing his swing speed, but. He did the reverse of, you know, you, it's very hard to take a long driver and make a tour player out of him. Much easier to take a tour player and make a long driver out of him. Mm-hmm. And it all boils down to fundamentals. Bryson is a, was a damn good golfer to start with, to pro golfer. So, and, that, and that's why a lot of us that are in the business of, of, of breaking down professional golf thought it was crazy because he was a heck of a golfer. It's and, not, and, it's, and it's and it's yeah. a big risk that he took adding all of that bulk, changing the way he approaches the game, and we're like, I don't, I don't up, agree with that. Yeah, but I, but I, I'm just saying from my standpoint, yeah. you know, this this guy is going to be a heck of a player already is, and and he's transforming his body and he's pushing envelopes and you know we're thinking you know injury and just is, is everything he's doing. Why why mess with a formula? That, that's already got you a great big house, more money you could possibly spend, and you ride around in Rolls Royce, and you'll never in your whole life step on a commercial aircraft again. Why mess with a formula that got you there? Because he yet wants, he pushed it. He wants to get better. Yeah, his that's his that's his mantra, and a lot of those guys are like that. Is that they they just want to keep improving. But I've seen a lot of those guys that want to keep improving get really bad. Luke Donald is a great example. Not that he got really bad. He got to be number one in the world and decided, okay, now I can try and pick up some distance. Last time I looked, he was outside the top 100 in the world. So sometimes players get to number one and they push it too hard and they lose their identity. They lose who they are. And occasionally you see a Bryson DeChambeau take it to the next level like he's done, and I applaud him for doing that. But I got to point out that he did take on some risk in doing that. Well, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I, I've seen what he's been doing, and I think he's doing it the right way. I don't know what Luke Donald did. I don't know yep. what was going on in his life. He I didn't. Mean, he that, didn't that bulk. Could, he didn't bulk up. Yeah, but if if I mean, there's there's all kinds of a whole myriad of things that could have contributed mm-hmm. to him, you know, going down the world leaderboard. But you know, as far as uh, you know, and I tell my students. That are trying to hit it farther. I'm like, look, if you if you stay centered and rotate, you can swing as hard as you want, as long as you stay centered and your balance isn't moving around. Because once you start lunging, it's over. It's is over. that is that what you see with a Deschambeau? Because he's going at it clearly as hard as he can. No, I think I think he is he like I said, he's doing it the right way. He's just he, he, you know when you add that much distance. All, all of a sudden, you're playing different irons into the greens, and you got to work on your game because everything from 100 yards and in, when you have that kind of club head speed, is all feel. Yeah. You can't gauge, oh, I'm going to hit this club this distance, that club this distance. You've got all those yardages that come up that you have to, you have to work a shot or work a club. There's a lot of feel involved. So different, different game. So we're sitting here at the Dustin Johnson Golf School. Dustin obviously you know, hits a ball among the longest on the PGA Tour, and that's and that's with a ball flight and a little heavier driver. He he could hit a little farther if he wants to. Well, here's a perfect example of somebody that he's fine. 
Yeah. He's like, I don't, I don't need to do all that. Right, I got it already. And my job is scoring. Yeah, and that's what he does, and he's great. But, but my point is, from your perspective on staff at this golf school, you, you, you obviously see some tour players out there that could pick up some distance. But, but a lot of students that I mean, hitting a golf ball farther is fun. There isn't anything more fun than making some changes, whether it's working out or changing equipment or technique, and all of a sudden you're hitting it by your buddies that have been hitting it by you. There ain't anything more fun maybe in all of sports than doing that and then laughing at them about it. I mean, that, that's like, you know, you, you talk about, well, I lowered my handicap from 11 to 9. That's great. But if you all of a sudden start hitting it by a guy that's hit it by you your whole life, that's a lot more fun than lowering your handicap from, from 11 to 9. You're, you're in this school working for, for Alan Terrell. And, and um, obviously, you're here to help people. You're focusing a lot right now on juniors, but down the road, you're going to be doing more clinics and, and exposing what you've done to more people. Do you see, when the average student comes in, the average golfer, some pretty simple ways that they can pick up some distance? Absolutely. Where does that, nor where does that normally start? Well, I mean, it's different for different age groups, obviously, but I work with a lot of seniors, People that have lost 20 yards over you know, the last 10 or 20 You're looking years. at me funny when you say that because that's about exactly what yeah. I lost. <laughs> but, you know, you, once you put them on video, it's pretty easy to show them that they've, they've stopped their full backswing or that their shoulders stopped turning. And the, the most interesting thing that I've found is that, you know, they always want to get their left shoulder turned more, but they, their right shoulder stops. And it's so much easier – You'll, it's, it's a eureka moment when I work with these people and tell them, I want you to turn your right shoulder back. And all of a sudden, they've increased their turn 15%. That equates to distance, more power. And, and I, I enjoy that. I get tremendous satisfaction out of helping people get their yards. I love it. This is why I do this. And, uh, but turning the shoulders is a big one. But you have to be careful not to start shifting your weight around. And, and when you, you know, the, the very simple way to put it is to take your left shoulder and turn it over your right knee. That's the power position. With that, without letting your right knee go outside your foot, if you can stay inside, the whole golf swing is between your feet. Yeah. You turn into that backside, you turn the left shoulder over the right knee, and you're in a power position to go. And as long as you have it loaded up, and then you're drifting forward. You got to stay there. So you turn back there and you stay there and you unload. Keep your head behind the ball till it's gone, because that'll allow you to drop the club in the slot and hit it versus flaring that shoulder out and having an over the top move. And the over the top early release move casting comes from lateral movement. Because Short turn and lateral movement, right? Yes, and the, the, that's the lateral movement in the downswing. Yeah. I don't care what you do in the backswing. If you're sliding forward at all in the downswing, your brain knows the ball's st sitting still, and you've got to hurry up and hit it so you, the club comes out every, every little bit you slide. I teach rotational golf because that's where the speed is. Well, that same – little conversation you just let me in on. I remember it's been about two or three years ago. We were out playing golf, and I was struggling with my driver, and you told me that, and I forgot. It's put the right shoulder behind you and stay behind the ball. And the rest of that day, I drove the ball beautifully. And 
And the, the thing that's so cool is some basic fundamentals like that, you, you can, I think, hook people pretty quick because, because if they're not doing those things and they start doing it, they're going to pick up some yardage right off the bat. And then this facility we're sitting here in, the, the Dustin Johnson Golf School, it's got all the bells and whistles when you want to maximize everything else. Part, part of it is a gym. Uh, we've got all, all the technology here, the capability capability to fit people and all the latest and greatest. So, so all of that works together. And, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons you're excited about being here at Dustin Johnson Golf School, because it's, it's got everything you need to really maximize students' ability to hit the ball as long as they can. Well, there's nothing we can't address. Nothing. Short game, putting, uh, long game, irons, everything. We, Alan, Alan and Dustin built this place. And they left no stone unturned. So there's a lot of pieces here, and but that if anybody walks through that door and they have a different problem, whatever, we, we can work with anything. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky, I'm very lucky to be here. Well, I'm gonna get you guys to help me a little bit with my driving because I can do everything else all right. I got to figure out how to drive it a little bit better. I was talking to Alan about that earlier. Uh, for information for our listeners. Um, you just go to DustinJohnsonGolfSchool.com. All of that is there. And, and Sean, I want to finish up with just, just a couple of stories. We're talking about when, when you're the World Long Drive champion, you go on the road, and you spend a lot of years on the road. Um, I, I've heard you estimate that you've given well over 1,000 clinics over the oh, years, yeah. different parts of the world. And a lot, a lot of times when you've done those clinics, you, you might be paired up with, with a Hall of Fame type golfer like a Sam Snead, oh, yeah. Arnold Palmer, a Gary Player. Let's talk a couple of little stories. I, I never met Sam Snead. Always heard he was quite the character. I, I, I know you actually spent a day or so with him. Talk talk to me well, a little bit about Sam Snead. It was actually the first exhibition I did in front of a crowd. It was in 1991, and I hadn't won anything, so I you know I was just doing it. But I got there a little bit early, and uh, there was a legends senior legends event going. And my wife was with me, and uh, we had just been married. So we're walking down the hill, and I, I had an exhibition, at, say, at 11. I'm down there at 9 o'clock. I want to hit balls and, you know, not embarrass myself. So I'm, we're walking down the hill, and I'm walking kind of fast because I'm nervous. And this cart pulls up behind. says, are you guys from Japan? And I was like, where? I turned around. Immediately I saw the straw hat, and this older guy that's Sam Sneed. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, no, sir, uh, we're not from Japan. Uh, he goes, oh, well, you know, in Japan, the wives have to walk 10 feet behind their husband. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> he said, are you, are you going down the driving range? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, hop in. I'll give you a ride. So I jump, I jump in next to him, and he goes, "Oh, now he get, he, the lady, the little lady sits by old dad." <laughs> <laughs> he kicked me out, so she'd sit next to me. So he, he's wanting to get Karen to ride. He didn't oh, care yeah, what about yeah, you. yeah, yeah. So we go down there, and he, as we're driving down, he says, uh, "Are you a tour player? You know what's what are you doing here?" And I said, "No, sir. I'm I'm a long driver. You know, I hit the ball. I compete. You know, do competitions." He goes. Oh, really? He goes, well, I need to see this move. I might learn something. We get down there, and I get set up, and I take a few swings, and I'm so dead gum nervous, and I'm spraying them here and there. And, and he, he 
at one point he leans down, he, he gets down on one knee and he gets in front of my grip and he puts his hands on my grip and he starts moving my hands around. So he's strengthening my left hand. He's all, and I'm standing there and I'm looking down at these old leather, big old paws he yeah. had. And the age spot stuff. And I'm like, that is Sam Sneed holding my hands like that. I'm, I'm so in awe. And he's like, no, nah, he can move this over here. Now, now try that. And I'd hit it. Boom, dead straight. I was like, wow. He goes, you see that? And uh, he spent 45 minutes with me that morning. Did he send you a bill? Nope. <laughs> I've heard he's famous for sending bills. Well, yeah, I didn't give him my address. Yeah, but, that, was, that was probably pretty smart. But yeah, yeah. But that, that was a neat, neat thing. And uh, I'll never forget that because yeah. he took that time out for me. And it was, that was actually the first golf lesson I ever had was with Sam Sneed. That's, oh boy, that's a, that's something to talk about yeah. there. I mean, I've always heard that he's just unbelievable character and that West Virginia yeah. accent. He's one of the one of the folks. I wish I'd had a chance to to at least chat with him or say hello. And and the thing is, his golf swing to this day is still studied as well. I mean, he's if you start asking people purest golf swing all time, he 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 comes up in the top five every time. Some people have him as number one. So what what a great. Uh, Opportunity for you. When I see Your that first formal golf lesson from Sam yeah. Snead, are you kidding me? When I see his fluid swing, I'm like, now there's a guy that's never had an injury. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, so how about uh, uh, Mr. Palmer's story? Have you, did you ever do any clinics with Mr. Palmer? Well, I haven't done clinics with, but I did play play golf with him. I was I shot a commercial for Dunlop uh, at Bay Hill uh, one year and. We shot the commercial early in the morning before the golf groups came through, and I, we were done. So I'd been gone for 18 days traveling and uh, doing exhibitions. And I was my wife, was Karen, was pregnant with our second child uh, that was due in a, like a month. And so I needed to get home that day, and I was flying out that afternoon. So my bags are all by the backdrop. I'm standing there waiting on the, the cab to take me to the airport. And I look over, and I see Mr. Palmer is practicing putting and I'm like oh my god that's Arnold Palmer I never met him but he was my all-time hero my heart starts pounding because I know I'm starting to think how am I going to meet this guy because I want to shake his hand and I thought all right you never know what somebody's famous is going to be like and uh so I, I walked kind of towards him but a little bit away from him kind of like if he gave me a go to hell look I'd just be like well I'm just going <laughs> over here I don't know what your problem is. but he looked up and he said, how are you, young man? And I was like, I'm doing great, Mr. Palmer. And I be, made a beeline to him. Yeah. And uh, he said, did you play today? I said, no, sir. I shot a commercial. I don't remember so-and-so. And he's like, oh, you a tour player? I said, no. I, I won the Long Drive World Championship. He goes, really? Wow. How far? I was like, uh, 362 yards of 12 inches <laughs> with no wind. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, was cold like, uphill. And he goes, I've hit a few about that far. And I'm like, I know you have. And uh, he's, we're talking. He's, he says, well, and I, at one point I said, you know, Mr. Palmer, you know, the year I was born was a pretty good year for you. And he, goes, and he looks at me and goes, what year was that? I said, 1962. And he goes, yeah, that was a pretty good year. <laughs> so he's making these putts. He's 25 feet away, and he's draining like two out of three, and he's talking to me the whole time. And he's looking down at his ball and his putt, and he goes, so how long are you in town? And I was 
Well, a few more days. You know, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I may look stupid. However long I need to be in town. Yeah. So he says, well, how'd you like to play golf with me tomorrow? And I was like, I said, Mr. Palmer, that would make my career. If I could play golf with you. And he goes, come with me. So he takes me over to the starter shack, leans in, and this old guy's in there. He looked like he was 130. Mr. Palmer leans in. He goes, have we got room for one more tomorrow? And he kind of snaps at Mr. Palmer, like, well, who is he? Like he's controlling who's going to play. <laughs> Mr. Palmer leans in that window and he goes, he's the world long drive champion, and he's on my team. And the guy goes, well, I guess we got room. <laughs> so he turned to me and he goes, Sean, can you make it 11-17 tea time tomorrow? And I said, I'll be here at 8.30. <laughs> and I was. And oh, I, so treat. long story short, I mean, I played, played around with him, and, and uh, it was just so – I was in awe of him so much. It was hard to focus on my game. In fact, we were walking up a fairway, and I'd hit my ball to the right. And I walked with Mr. Palmer, and he hit a shot, and I kept walking with him. And we walked way past my ball. But I had given his caddy my camera to get a picture of me walking up the fairway. And I kept walking with him because we were talking. I didn't want to – and I walked. And so we get up close to Green. He goes, Sean, did you find your ball yet? No, I just wanted to walk up the fairway with you. <laughs> he patted me on the shoulder, and he goes, all right. Mm. It was pretty cool. But I, the key to this whole story is I was so impressed with him as a person because he was he's just so authentic and genuine uh, in how he treats people. Whether they're famous or not, he treat, treated everyone just so graciously that it, it really affected me. And uh, so – when my son was born, I told my wife, I said, I think I got a name. Wow. We need to name him after Arnold Palmer. I said, that he'd have a great story. And she was like, well, I can tell you right now, we're not naming him Arnold. <laughs> I said, well, how about Palmer? She said, okay. So I, I ended up seeing Mr. Palmer again a couple of years later, and I told him the story about naming my son after him. And we had these, it was at a radio show deal, and there was two radio guys sitting over here to the left. And when I told him I'd name my son after him, Mr. Palmer looks at those guys, and he just shook his head, smiled, didn't say anything. That's, that's all I needed. Is he, mm. It made him feel good. But that's my Arnold Palmer story. And what, and what a great one. And uh, we're, we're going to end the show with that, because I don't think we, we can go up from there. Uh, well, I appreciate you having me, Charlie, always. Well, Sean, the Beast Fister, three-time World Long Drive champion. Thank you for sharing our stories, your stories. Thank you for star uh, sharing your knowledge. And uh, for our listeners out there, if you want to spend a little time with, with Sean Fister, uh, you can reach him through the Dustin Johnson Golf School here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that information is all at uh, DustinJohnsonGolfSchool.com. I'm Charlie Reimer. Thanks for joining us right here on Balls in the Air, and uh, we'll uh, hear you next time. Appreciate it, folks.